These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Hammurabi was a man who desired peace, order, and justice for the whole world. After 235 years of anarchy and warfare in Mesopotamia, he knew that what people needed was not another Sargon, not another Shamsi Adad whose focus was purely on warfare. Did he spend the first 30 years of his reign planning the unification of Mesopotamia, or did the opportunity simply arise and he had the competence and vision to step up to the plate? Ultimately, the answer is unknowable, but when the opportunity arose, he clearly displayed his vision to the world, a vision of justice, peace, and order that matched his personality to a T. Whatever he may have planned, the Elamite invasion of Babylonia in 1765 was definitely not it, and represented a genuine crisis. Still, Hammurabi preempted the wisdom of Rahm Emanuel by nearly 4,000 years, and knew better than to let a good crisis go to waste. Having taken control of the armies of Mari as well as his own forces, no sooner had the first war ended than he turned them to his own gain, conquering the southern kingdom of Larsa. Now, Ribsin was deeply respected by Hammurabi, but he also served to the great king as an example of going too far in the other direction. Rimsin had seen Lars's kingdom collapse multiple times in its 150-year history because of overly rapid and incautious expansion, and so he moved very slowly, very carefully, and consolidated his power and economic base as much as possible over his record-long 60-year reign. This wasn't a bad plan, go look at the episode Rimsin the Pretty Good for the many ways in which this really worked out for him. However, moving slowly also had cost him, and Larsa had stagnated militarily over the last two decades. Hammurabi emulated Rimsin's patience in peacetime, but with this opportunity, he struck hard and fast, taking all of the South in less than a year. At this point, Hammurabi may have finally lost Mari's army shortly after fending off a retaliatory attack from the Gutians, but the combined power of Sumer and Akkad could now be brought to bear against the fragmented north, and by 1761, Hammurabi had conquered everywhere that was worth conquering, and then he stopped. With the other great conquerors of Mesopotamia, there was pretty much always an and then to the conquest, but Hammurabi saw that there was no real purpose in going further. Elam and Yamhad to his east and west were too strong to be beaten in a short war, so the cost would have been too great. The deserts of Arabia and the Zagros Mountains were lightly populated but poor and hard to hold on to, so the benefits would be too low. And so Hammurabi stopped conquering. He didn't put his army away, there would still be issues that would need responding to, but he devoted himself to his true passion in life, which seems to have been micromanaging his subordinates. There are dozens of letters that survive from his last decade that show us exactly what he was doing with his new empire. Most crucially, they show us a number of details about how Rim Sin's Larsa model of Ilkum compensation and tax centralization was brought north into Babylon.
One core feature of Rimsin's model is that, rather than leaving taxes in the cities that collect them, all tax revenues were brought into the capital and then dispersed again from that capital to wherever the king felt they were needed. This little innovation was easy enough to implement for Hammurabi, he just moved the collection point for the southern cities, already used to doing it this way, up a bit north to Babylon. But the northern cities were put on the centralization program pretty quick. Hammurabi didn't adopt this centralization, or any of his programs, for his own benefit. Hammurabi genuinely cared for the well-being of his people. Now, this may sound odd, given that just two episodes ago, I was explaining how he destroyed the rebellious cities of Mari and Eshnuna with fire and water. But by the understanding of the age, it was necessary to prevent the greater evil of further rebellions. He had, after all, just conquered Mesopotamia in a record amount of time, and through some occasionally duplicitous methods. The first rebellions were probably inevitable, no matter how benevolent he was, but Hammurabi knew that there would only be a second rebellion if he wasn't decisive enough with the first one. But once the rebels were put down, Hammurabi treated the defeated parts of his empire as true parts of his empire, and took significant steps to rebuild them after the disastrous period of warfare. There were many little projects undertaken in the 1750s, but perhaps the most impressive and emblematic of Hammurabi's vision is the canal project named Hammurabi is the Abundance of the People, and isn't that such a great name, which ran for 160 kilometers past Isim, Nippur, Uruk, Larsa, Ur, and Eridu. All of these cities have seen their farmland and crop yields reduced by salinization, and only by opening up wholly new lands could these cities be saved. Of course, the rewards of this new canal were not equally distributed. It was this new arable land that provided royal plots for those who rendered service to the king under the Ilkham system. We have preserved a fair bit of the actual implementation of Hammurabi's regime in the south, thanks particularly to a cache of letters sent to a senior administrator named Sin Idnam. Take, for example, the following letter Sin Idnam received. I have heard say among my attendants, Shamash Hazir has become steward. Now that he's been appointed, he has not taken up his post. That's what I heard. Shamash Hazir is with you. Why does he delay a single night now that he has been appointed? Make him leave with my messenger, Sekum, who brought you this letter, and send him to me. We can see most obviously here that Hammurabi was a very impatient fellow. But more than that, note that the king of a large empire is micromanaging appointments on such a level that he's following up on a late administrator. There is more. Shamash Hazir would be returned to the Larsa administration later and receive the following letter. The builder Lipidishtar from Al-Ashar is in the service of the palace and for a long time has received grain and wool rations. The king has now taken away his grain and wool rations and has ordered, give him a field of 6.5 hectares near his village. I am writing you this order of my lord, and give him a plot of 6.5 hectares from either his family's fields or from another confiscated field that is available. 
Hammurabi's letters deal with incredibly trivial details, managing the affairs of single bureaucrats, adjusting boundaries on tiny plots of lands, investigating the desertion of individual soldiers, following up multiple times to help someone find a runaway slave, or allocating individual plots along the Ilkum system. The amount of organization and effort required for the king of a Bronze Age empire to micromanage on such a level and to the degree that he did is nothing short of amazing. There is definitely an aspect of him as the boss from hell, but all this personal attention was part of a genuine commitment to the people. It seems that nearly anyone was free to write him a letter, and many of these letters would be investigated by him personally. One letter that may have gotten passed up the chain to the king himself reads, I am not getting water from St. Idnam for my sesame field. The sesame will die. Don't tell me later you did not write to me. The sesame is visibly dying. Ibi Elaborate saw it. That sesame will die and I have warned you. This may have been a problem with the complainant's field being slightly higher in elevation than other fields on the canal, and Sin Idnam may have been balancing the cost of a dry field upstream with flooded ones downstream. Or it may have been a simple bureaucratic oversight. In another case, possible administrative malfeasance was brought to the king's attention, and he responded with, Shuman la Ilam told me this. A case of bribery occurred in Bad Tibera. There are men who took bribes and witnesses who know about it. This is what he told me. I'm sending you Shuman Ilam with a messenger and a soldier. As soon as you read this tablet, investigate the matter. If there was indeed bribery, put a seal on the silver, and all that was taken as bribes, and send it to me. Also, send me the men who took the bribes and the witnesses who know about it, which Shuman Ilam will identify. These letters tell us a great deal about the nuts and bolts of Babylonian administration, but more than that, they paint a compelling picture of a man committed to using his power for the betterment of the people, not in some abstract ideological sense, but by very concretely solving problems. Nowadays, we call this sort of thing constituent services, and his great building projects would be classed as pork barrel spending. But in modern times, it has a bit of a negative connotation for promoting parochial interests and nepotism above the common good. But for Hammurabi, there was none of the modern political theory. All he saw was that he had power, and he could either use it for conquest and personal gain like many rulers, or he could see it as a responsibility and exercise that power uniformly for peace, order, and general prosperity. These letters also give us the impression that the Ilkum system, as administered by the Babylonian administration, was a bit of a mess. Many of the plots were part of the massive Hammurabi is the Abundance of the People canal project, but they were assigned pretty much at random, and once the plots started to fill up, it got hard to sort through all the records and decide which plots were already handed out and which ones were still vacant. One complaint led to Hammurabi sending a letter to his administrator Shamash Hazir that read... Sin Ishmiani from Kutala, a date palm gardener, informed me, Shamash Hazir took away the field of my family and gave it to a soldier. This is what he brought to my attention. Is a field under long-term tenancy ever taken away? 
Take care of this case. If this field is indeed of his family, give it back to Sin Ishmiani. Again, not only is Hammurabi reading letters written by small plot gardeners, he's taking action to rectify some relatively very small claim. But more importantly, note that the competing claims of people who the king was trying to give land to grew increasingly complicated, and a few such accounts are noted. Folks receiving plots would sometimes get two or three separate ones scattered all around the canal, which would be a massive hassle to work and keep track of. But then there's also the issue that many of these landholders are not really expected to be working these tracts of land anyway. The professional soldiers would be off fighting or garrisoning, while the scribes and craftsmen were receiving that land specifically because they were providing some service to the king as their main occupation, such as the builder Lippet Ishtar, whose letter we read just a bit ago. Perhaps if the folks like Lippet Ishtar had excess sons that weren't all that interested in the building trade, they could work the farm. But for the most part, it seems that the vast majority of these Ilkham fields were sublet to a further class of agricultural laborers, who would receive perhaps half or a third of the product of the land in exchange for doing basically all the work. A sort of feudalism in miniature, where hundreds or possibly thousands of soldiers, scribes, and craftsmen acted as landlords over tiny vice-royalties, populated by a handful of laborers each. A good chunk of Hammurabi's code is dedicated to laying out all the different rights and responsibilities of those hired laborers. And while it was definitely confusing, we have records of bureaucratic administrators whose sole job was managing all the different land claims and many of the problems that arose from them, it was, in the end, a remarkably stable and productive system, forming the backbone of Babylonian prosperity for the next 150 years. And in all likelihood, most of these farmers and plots probably worked just fine, and the records that survive show us a disproportionate amount from the complainers and the times where the system went wrong, since those points of failure are what would have required the most regulation and bureaucratic attention. And there were bureaucrats everywhere in Babylonia, perhaps the most that the region had seen since the Ur dynasty. Keeping records, writing contracts, scribing letters, and most crucially, taking censuses, counting up not just the people, but the livestock and agricultural yields as well. For the general public, these records helped establish which land belonged to who. For the scribes, important quantitative data was collected to allow them to mathematically determine things like expected yield per acre. For the king, this census allowed him to know how much could be called up for the labor levies, for military drafts, and for annual taxation, and thus plan the projects for the year. Following Rim's sin of Larsa, these taxes would no longer be collected at the closest city than held in local treasuries for disbursement. Rather, the new system brought every shekel of silver and gur of grain to the city of Babylon itself to be counted, inspected, stored, and ultimately distributed. This may seem to us like a fairly small administrative change, and may have seemed like that at the time as well, but by undermining the wealth and power of the local administrative centers that had once been in charge of managing this wealth, ever since really the Akkadian Empire of Sargon, 
Just as in Larsa, the power of the outlying cities was vastly reduced, accelerating an already existing process of decay for many cities in Sumer. This won't reach its conclusion for another 20 years, but it is important to keep in mind for later. Once the rebellion of Eshnunna had been put down by drowning the city, the 1750s were the most peaceful and prosperous period that Mesopotamia had seen in 300 years. The harvests were good, at least relatively speaking. The bumper crop of harvests and war plunder fed a booming economy full of craftsmen, scribes, and other specialists. The law was carefully and equitably enforced, and it even appears that escape attempts by slaves fell noticeably during this golden age, though the causes of this may not necessarily be happy ones. But by the last few years of the decade, Hammurabi's health began to fail. In 1751, he named his eldest son Samsu'ilina as his co-regent, slowly drawing himself away from the government that he had dedicated his life to. And in 1750, after 42 years on the throne, Hammurabi passed away at perhaps 60 years old. His son would pick up the reins more or less how his father had left them, but we'll be making no mention of Samsu'ilina this episode, saving him for later. Rather, it's time to pause and meditate on the tremendous impact that Hammurabi had on the world around him and his legacy for generations to come. Looking up to the north, up the Euphrates River, his rule stretched well past the now-ruined city of Mari. There are a handful of stragglers who have returned to the burnt-out town and would squat in the ruins for a time, but for the most part, the population has either moved north to Turka and Tuttal or south to Haradam. These three cities together will take the economic place of Mari, but none individually will ever match the ancient capital for prestige or splendor. And if you're having trouble keeping track of the names, I'm reposting a map of the height of the Babylonian Empire on the post for this episode at oldeststories.net. If we go north instead along the Tigris, we see the Diala River forking off to the right, where the fields of what used to be Ashnunna's kingdom are beginning to recover from the devastation of three invasions and two rebellions. Further north, the landscape is dotted with semi-independent tribes and cities, including Asher, who all owe allegiance and submission to Hammurabi, though each knows that they're a long way from Babylon, and should the empire's power wane, there will be no threat of force to keep them properly loyal. To the south, the cities of Sumer, unspeakably ancient even in the Bronze Age, are a shell of what they once were. Salt deserts creep into the once-rich fields of exhausted cities, and the population is slowly declining. A river of green cuts through the arid waste in the form of Hammurabi's newest canals, but even those who work alongside it must surely wonder how long until this land, too, is poisoned by overwork. And right at the heart of it all is the beating economic engine of the whole region. The lasting legacy of Hammurabi will be the centralization of the region that we are now going to be calling Babylonia for the next thousand years or more, as well as solidifying the position of the city of Babylon as the preeminent urban center within that region until the city finally dies under the Middle Parthian Empire. 
The paradigm has shifted, and though we have quite a lot of both Babylonian and Mesopotamian history up until now, in later centuries, Hammurabi will be remembered for being the one who changed the center of gravity in the region, who established Babylon as the prince of cities, who ended the era of city-state domination in favor of regional states, and presided over all of it with wisdom, justice, and strength. He would become like the beloved George Washington of Babylon, standing tall atop the true foundation of the empire, if not the city itself. His legacy would be referenced in literature and inscriptions for as long as cuneiform continues to exist, and even kings of later dynasties would invent genealogies to relate themselves to him. In the immediate aftermath, for the duration of the Old Babylonian period, the most crucial part of Hammurabi's legacy would be his strength and conquests as justification for the rule of his direct successors. A hymn to the god Marduk that was supposedly composed by Hammurabi himself illustrates this aspect clearly. I am the king, the brace that grasps wrongdoers, that makes people of one mind. I am the great dragon among kings, who throws their counsel into disarray. I am the net that is stretched over the enemy. I am the fear-inspiring, who, when lifting his fierce eyes, gives the disobedient the death sentence. I am the great net that covers all evil intent. I am the young lion who breaks necks and royal scepters. I am the battle net that catches him who offends me. This fierce and stern aspect of his personality should never be lost when remembering the man that he was, and his raw power underlay all his moral and cultural achievements. But as time passed, and he became less of an active political concern, Hammurabi transformed in the public imagination into that of a more idealized ruler, probably the sort of remembrance he himself would have preferred, in which he was a model for later kings, displaying his justice and emphasizing that a king should rule for the benefit of his people and piety of the gods. The inscriptions that endured would brag that Hammurabi put an end to battles, and was the shepherd who brings peace. The fact that he did all this with even more battles and violence is partly beside the point and partly the whole point. And of course, the most important physical symbol of this aspect of his legacy would come to be the famous Code of Laws, originally erected as a seven-and-a-half-foot black stone stella in the middle of the city of Babylon. It seems likely that there were other copies distributed to other cities, and over the centuries these copies moved around quite a bit, including the plundering of the original in Babylon by Elam, who would take it to Susa, where it would stand until recovered by French archaeologists. This, above everything else, would endure for a thousand years, being studied by scribes and commented on extensively, though none of the commentaries themselves survive. There was even a copy present in the library of the Neo-Assyrian king Ashurbanipal in Nineveh. The laws weren't followed exactly, but they did continue to be the primary work of jurisprudence in ancient Mesopotamia, an achievement of style and legalist content that would never be matched in the ancient world. But the law code wasn't the only physical inscription Hammurabi left behind. 
Like all good rulers of his age, he carved his own praises in stone throughout his empire. A fragment recovered in the city of Ur announces that Hammurabi brought the barbarians of Elam, Gutium, Subartu, and Tukrish, where the languages are obscure, to civilization under the hand of Marduk, and had put straight their confused minds. Though he never actually conquered them, he claims to have brought them closer into civilization by imposing proper gods and proper language onto at least a portion of them nearest his empire. Unlike previous kings, who boast of how they defeated their barbarian enemies, Hammurabi boasts of how he civilized them and improved their lot in life by bringing them closer to the superior Babylonian way of life. Modern political thought doesn't tend to approve of this sort of thing, but Hammurabi was acting with what he thought of as benevolence. As he himself said, I am the just and righteous man. Because it is foremost, the word that I speak is not to be dismissed. May they praise my ability and the gods' greatness. Though Hammurabi never claimed divinity within his own lifetime, even before his death it seems others were claiming it for him. And shortly afterwards, the name Hammurabi-ili, meaning Hammurabi is my god, begins appearing in records and contracts, indicating a level of personal religious devotion to the great king that would be unparalleled anywhere else in his dynasty. After the fall of Hammurabi's dynasty in the Middle and Neo-Babylonian periods, the great king would be remembered chiefly for his wisdom and learning, following the intensive study of his law code. A large number of works, from poetry to medical texts, would be attributed to him to lend them weight, and he would gain status in the popular imagination as something of a polymath king, in addition to his status as a god, who would continue to have oaths sworn to him just as if he were a high god. But eventually, Hammurabi was forgotten. At some point, likely in the final episodes of this podcast, I will need to go over the death of cuneiform text and ancient Mesopotamian culture, and it will be a sad day for all of us. But the short of it is that the arrival of Alexander the Great, then the Parthians and the Romans, all of whom used not just different languages but a different alphabet, caused the already dying cuneiform languages to perish. Aramaic had already replaced Amorite, Akkadian, and Sumerian, and it transitioned seamlessly into the new alphabetic tradition, leaving cuneiform behind for good. By the time of Christ, the name Hammurabi appears to have been all but forgotten, even though some contend that the extensive spread and study of his law code helped inspire passages in the Bible and laws as far away as ancient Rome. And there he lingered destined to be forgotten for about as long as he was famous, until the year 1850, 3,600 years after his death. The English explorer Sir Henry Austin Layard encountered two bronze knobs south of Baghdad, inscribed with the cuneiform, which had only recently begun to be deciphered, Palace of Hammurabi. The site, soon discovered to be legendary Babylon, would come to be the great discovery of the era and generate a tremendous amount of contemporary excitement. 
However, it was the opening of the year 1902 when a French team in Susa pulled out the remarkably well-preserved original stela of Hammurabi's law code, an absolutely unprecedented find up to that point in terms of both content and the state of preservation. Hammurabi became a household name, believed for a long time to be the oldest lawgiver in human history, and the question of the extent to which the Bible itself may have had influences from neighboring cultures raged among scholars for decades, and continues at a lower volume even today. Testament to the impact that Hammurabi's rediscovery made only just a bit over 100 years ago is that in 1949, when the U.S. Congress was being remodeled, the U.S. government selected him as the second of 23 of history's greatest legislators, after only Moses, and he can still today be seen engraved in the Capitol building of the modern Babylon. Of course, I don't need to tell anyone listening to this why Hammurabi was significant and definitely worthy of the immortality he's earned. You have, after all, spent the last eight weeks hearing about him already. But even though he's now dead, that doesn't mean we're finished with him. You see, next episode is the show's 50th, and as a sort of special episode, I decided to do the thing I swore I would not be doing at the start of this series. I will be reading all of Hammurabi's Code of Laws, Prologue, Decisions, and Epilogue, with commentary, start to finish. It will take about two hours, and while hopefully a few of you are excited about this, some of you are probably already thinking that this sounds like the most horrible thing ever. Don't worry. When the show returns to normal the week after, we will pick back up with the history of Hammurabi's successors and the new landscape of Mesopotamia. It will be full of action, upheaval, and literary achievements, so feel free to skip the law code if that really isn't your thing, but make sure to come back, because there are some very exciting developments coming with the later part of the old Babylonian Empire. For those who are curious to maybe hear what all the fuss is about, and maybe see how some of the things we've already discussed were translated into actual law, then join us next week for a two-hour-long survey of Babylonian justice, economics, and all the ways that polygamous marriages could go wrong. Thank you for listening. <laughs>